Our scripture reading today is from Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for bringing everyone who's here out. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus who considered it joy to be our mediator between a holy and perfect God and an imperfect and wicked people. Jesus, I pray that we would begin and continue to relinquish control of our lives and to let you, Father, have complete dominion and authority. And like the song said, you don't share your throne. So Jesus, help us to just relinquish that control and to follow you better. We love you so much. We ask all this in your name. Amen. And we're so excited that you guys are here. Um, as, as Brent was telling you guys early, earlier, um, this morning that we're going through the, the book of Jude, and we've gone through a number of different books over the course of the summer. Uh, we studied the book of Habakkuk. We looked at the book of Philemon. Um, we've been working through the book of Jude, but next week we're going to start a study in the book of Romans that will probably last us, I would say, probably about 10 months. And so um, if you guys have ever studied that letter out before, um, it's an amazing letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Church of Rome, really just laying out what it means to be justified in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. And so, uh, but this morning I have the privilege of finishing up uh, our, our study in the book of Jude, which is interesting because um, I haven't preached in probably about five weeks. And uh, anytime you do something consistently, then you take a break from it and you come back. I um, have been excited to preach and as I was writing my sermon this week my brain has kind of been mushed because I have so many different things I kind of want to get off my chest I'm excited about but I'm going to try my best to kind of stay on task with my outline and stay focused although as you guys saw earlier I've already had a tangent within the first um, two minutes and so um, real quick plug if you want to get baptized I know that Brent mentioned that earlier but I just want to mention that again we have two people stepping up getting baptized next week can we give God a hand for that by the way that's awesome okay um, so we're going to be doing baptisms here during the service next Sunday, so I highly recommend you guys be here to celebrate with our brother and sister who are going to be getting baptized. If you want to get baptized, see me. We would still love for that to happen. Uh, what we'll do is we'll, we'll do our kind of normal service, and then in between the last two songs, we'll take a break, and we'll break off, and we'll, we'll see them give their testimony and get baptized, and we'll celebrate what God has done in their life. And so if you're interested in that, please come see me after the service. I'll be roaming around here somewhere. You'll see me trying to run down my kids or something along those lines. And so as we're kind of finishing up in Jude this morning and, and heading into the book of Romans next week, kind of this consistent reminder of what we as a church are consistently trying to do is as we're uh, gathering and, 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 and worshiping together in community, like one of our chief goals is to consistently stir up in your heart and our own heart this idea of the magnificence of Jesus Christ and who he is, right? That, that the Bible really is one large unfolding story about what God has done to redeem his creation, 
And you and I as a part of that creation are a, a part of that story of what God has done for us. And so as we're studying these books, there's a tendency as we view the scriptures to kind of see the Bible as these broken up, fra fragmented pieces of history or whatever else is going on. And one of the things we're trying to do is help us to see how really the entire narrative of scripture is tied together in such a way so that we can see Jesus better, so that we might worship him more, that we might share him with others, that we might trust and grow more in him. That is why we gather, right? That is why we're here this morning, right? We're not here to see our best friend. Maybe you're here because your friend invited you, or you found us on a website, or you're going to try us as one of the other 125 churches that exist in the greater Gainesville area. Whatever that may be, right? This morning, it is not an accident that you are here. Right? That the God of the Bible declares over and over again that he is sovereign over all of creation. And as a part of that sovereignty, you are a part of God's will for you to be here this morning. And as a part of that will, we're going to worship him, we're going to study his word, and we're going to look at what he's doing. Okay? And so if you haven't been here over the course of the last few weeks, let me sum up what we've seen in the book of Jude up until this point. If you don't know where Jude is, go to the back of the Bible book of Revelation and go back one book. It's a, it's a one small little letter right before the book of Revelation, okay? And the, 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 the book is named after its author, Jude, okay? Which in Hebrew would have been Judah, a, a highly common Hebrew name, and in Greek it would have been Judas, Okay, now some of you probably right, are familiar with a guy named Judas in the New Testament who betrayed Jesus and, and handed him over to the, the Jewish religious leaders in the Romans. This is not the same guy. Church history teaches us that Jude, the author of this particular letter, is actually the half-brother of Jesus who, although he did not actually turn Jesus over to the religious authorities, still along with the rest of Jesus' family, thought Jesus was crazy and refused to follow him while he was on earth. Coincidentally though, he saw the resurrected Christ and he knew his brother to be dead beforehand and as you can imagine, it caused him to maybe change his opinion of who his brother was a little bit, right? And so Jude along with James and some of, other, uh, some of the rest of Jesus' family, right, had this encounter with the resurrected Christ and Jude ended up becoming a disciple and follower of Jesus. And so he wrote this letter sometime shortly after Peter wrote his letter to the churches in First and Second Peter. And what, what you see in this letter is really written as an encouragement and a warning to the local church, probably somewhere in, in the Jerusalem area, okay? And if, if you kind of look through the first 18 verses or so, they primarily deal with this issue that was starting to creep up within the church with false teaching. And, and what was happening is there was this doctrinal and moral error entering into the life of the early church. You know, you're, you're talking probably 30, 40 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, you start seeing people within the local church teaching error about the nature of God and who he was. Specifically what was happening were these ideas of these things called Gnostic Gospels. And there are people that claim to have extra knowledge about who God is and, and, and what he's done. And, and basically what these people were primarily doing was denying the deity of Jesus Christ. 
And so here you had people who walked with Jesus that were his disciples, that were writing letters to the local church, having to deal with people that never walked with Jesus, didn't know him, weren't, weren't eyewitnesses to the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. They're having to correct these people's errors. And basically what Jude is doing in this letter is calling the church to stand up to this. Because here's the reality, guys. In an age where we as a culture flock to philosophical ideas like postmodernism, right? There's no truth. There's moral ambiguity. There's, I can't tell someone they're wrong. I can't tell somebody what right or wrong is. That's the way our culture is. Which, by the way, interestingly, did you might notice the statements I was making there? Right? Like, you will be inundated if you are a student with this philosophical idea, okay? That there is no truth, that there is no right or wrong. The very fact that someone would make that statement, though, if you've taken any philosophy class, it is self-defeating. Because they're making an absolute statement about there being no absolutes. That's the absolute, and I'm using that as a pun, right? Irony of that belief system is that it uses an absolute to claim that there are no absolutes. And so as we live in an age, in a season where this is the, the common thread and theme of our culture that's even started to move its way into the church, where there is a profound amount of denial of basic doctrines and tenets that the scriptures might teach us, right, we see that we're not that different from what the church has been facing over the last 2,000 years. And that Jude's letter to the church is a timely warning, not just for his particular time period and context, but for us as well. That truth matters. That demanding biblical soundness is important because people's lives and eternities are at stake. Right? One of the things that is fascinating to me when you face the truths of the scripture, guys, is that they're either true or they're not. Either what the Bible says about you and I and our sin and our rebellion towards God is true or not. Either what the Bible says is true about how we are hopeless in our pursuit of trying to be good for God or we aren't. Either you and I are in need of God to rescue us from our sin and all the junk that we participate in in our lives that the Bible calls sin and rebellion, or we are not in need of his rescue. But the Bible is abundantly clear that we are. And so the Bible is either right or it's wrong. And the reality is, is if we're not going to stand on the side of what God's word teaches us, we're going to lose sight of what the church is supposed to be in the first place. And an etern eternity is at stake here, guys. Right? I know that some of us, as, as, as being a, a younger congregation for the most part, many of us in here right, struggle with things like fear of man and trying to please others. And so when, when other people are upset with you, right, we don't want to make waves. The reality is, is that if you think about this, the scriptures have stood the test of time for thousands and thousands of years. That people have been trying for thousands of years to disprove this book. Trying to disprove the stories and the historicity of what is going on here. And guess what? We still stand here in 2017 reading this book because it can't be done. 
right? The more that people try to disprove the, the nature of who God is and the stories that we see in the scriptures, the more we see that they actually line up with the prevailing philosophical problems we see facing our culture. And so Jude's warning to the church to demand biblical soundness and to fight for that is something we need to call and show in our own lives in the ministries that we're a part of, right? As we are called to show discernment in those who we interact with, the churches and the ministries that we're involved with, and what we demand of others as we handle biblical truth. Now last week, Pastor Brian led us through another section of the letter where Jude kind of moved into a different kind of argument. And what he was trying to do was encourage the church in the fact of what it looks like for them to live their lives as Christians. Right? So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up Jude and head over to verse 17 with me. Now I'm going to go ahead and read that because I want to break down a little bit what Brian taught us last week because it builds upon these last two verses of what we're looking at this morning. Okay, if you've got a Bible that's got a heading, right, the heading there before verse 17 is a call to persevere, right? He's just got done warning them about these false teachers, and then we get to this point where he says, okay, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to now call you as a church to act a certain way, and look at what he says. He says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And so what he does is he's, he encourages the church to really kind of remain in the original faith and message that they had been taught by the apostles when the church was first started. Right, sharing the gospel and the good news of what Jesus Christ had done. And so his encouragement there is that, as you can see, there's a number of different commands. But the, the first kind of command he gives there is this idea to keep, keep in the Lord. Right, keep yourselves in the love of the Lord. Now that's a really kind of ambiguous idea that people throw out, right? Because we say, if I said, hey, all right, we're going to teach you guys this morning, keep yourself in the love of God. That's a pretty un- uh, defined description of what it means to follow God, right? And so Jude goes on to say there that this is done by building and by praying. And so some incredibly practical ways that we kind of look at this command that Jude lays out for the church is that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, I don't know if you have been saved since you were two years old or you were like me and you came to know the Lord later in life. Whatever that truth is for you, Jude says, hey, there should be a few things that are true and you should be growing doctrinally. You should be reading the scriptures and learning more about who God is and who you are. And in light of that, you should be storing those things up so that when you are faced with things in the culture that press against that, you know what the truth is. 
That you should be praying consistently, asking God to change you and move because God is sovereign and without his movement, nothing that gets done gets done. That without God moving, nothing happens. I know that some of you guys in here, this is, this is hard for a lot of us because a lot of you guys are students or young professionals or you've been working over the years, right? And so you're, you're pretty successful. God teaches that nothing happens without him allowing it. So prayer by definition is you relinquishing control and remembering where you sit in the hierarchy of the universe. That you are dependent upon God moving. And so as we're keeping ourselves in the love of God, we're supposed to be growing doctrinally. We're supposed to be praying and learning to trust Christ more learning more about what God has done and trusting in that, and then knowing and believing in the promises of God to be true. Right? He says, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means looking forward to future promises God has given us about what his son is going to do and trusting that those promises are going to come to pass. So in reality, last week, finished with a command of what the church is supposed to look like. Right? And there's a, a tendency for us as, as Christians because we trust in the sovereignty of God to think that our faith is wholly passive. Right? That we just sit around and do nothing and that God does all the work. And, and the, the problem is, is there's this kind of fine line we walk as Christians in understanding the sovereignty of God and his role in our lives and yet knowing that God still calls us to action at times. And so Jude calls the church to action. But the problem is, just as easy as it is to become too passive in regards to our faith, it's also easy to become too active. And what I mean by that is you start relying on your own works and your own performance instead of what saved you in the first place. And so verses 24 and 25, our primary reading for this morning, is where Jude hits the reset button and makes sure that everyone that he's just given this command to understands what that command is centered around. Let me read that to you again. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Okay, so let me ask you guys a question. How many of you guys in here are familiar with what's known as Murphy's Law? Okay, half of you. All right, so let me, let me state what Murphy's Law is. And then when I say it, the, the rest of you guys are going to know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, Murphy's Law states if anything can go wrong, then it will go wrong. That's Murphy's Law. It's, it's, it's actually um, incredibly positive, right? You know, think about that. Like, my, my grandfather used to have a sign in his basement. For those of you guys that don't know what basements are because you live in Florida, there are these places that are underground, right? And you build your house up, and there's rooms and things under the ground, Okay, you can't do that in Florida because there's already sinkholes under all of our homes and you would just dig right into it and your house would go into it, right? But up north, there's, there tends to be like bedrock and other things that you can build on. So what they do is they dig down into the rock and there's these basements. And so I was in my grandfather's basement and he had this poster there 
in, in his, his workroom, and it had Murphy, it had this picture of this guy. I don't know if this was who people thought Murphy actually was. Okay, but on this poster, it says Murphy was an optimist. And it had this list of all these things that could go wrong throughout the day and things that he thought would happen. And my grandfather was a huge proponent of this. Uh, you know, some of you guys may have had grandfathers that were similar to mine, but my grandfather used to always say, if I didn't have bad luck, I wouldn't have any kind of luck at all. You know, really just positive outlook on life. And, you know, what's, what's interesting is, is, is it's funny, like, because, you know, if you had a friend that was like that, how many of you guys would want to be around that person? Right, like no one. It's like, man, this guy's weird, cynical. Like he's a, he's the most depressing person to be around all the time. But for something like for for older people, like my grandfather, I just thought it was kind of cute. You know, it's like, oh, grandpa. You know, he's kind of crazy. I love him. You know, and he'd go on and do his thing, and, and so he kind of had this like terrible attitude on, on on life as far as like just the way things are going. And so we've seen, if you guys have ever seen those bumper stickers that are kind of like in response to Murphy's law, if anything can go well, it will. Right? You you see those things, especially around Gainesville. They're super positive here, and it, you know, the, the reality is, is that both of these kind of outlooks on life really are, are, are people's opinion, but they're not necessarily any truth to them. Okay, the reason I'm sharing this idea of what Murphy's Law is, because when I was reading this passage this past week, it reminded me of a statement I heard years ago uh, listening to Pastor John MacArthur from out in California uh, preaching on this particular passage. And what he had said in the, in the midst of kind of reading Jude 24 and 25 was this. He said, if I could lose my salvation, I would. If I, if I in some way could lose the salvation that Jesus Christ secured in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, I would. And yet, the good news of what we see in verse 24 completely shatters that. Right, we've got one verse here in verse 24 that teaches, in my opinion, probably one of the most profound biblical and doctrinal truths in all of Scripture. Okay, let me read it to you again, and I'm going to tell you what it is. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That verse is teaching what is known as the doctrine of eternal security. Meaning that you and I, if we are a believer, disciple, follower of Jesus Christ, can not lose the salvation that God has secured for us. That we can not lose it. That what God has done, he will keep and see through your entire life. No matter your struggle with sin, no matter your doubts, no matter what your life background looks like, what your future is going to behold, that the scripture teaches that if you are in Christ and a follower of Jesus, God promises to keep you. Now, it's not a surprise to me that Jude shares that this particular concept right here because what he's just done previously, as I read to you guys, was give out a full list of commands of things we're supposed to be doing. 
right? He says, keep yourselves in the love of God, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, waiting for the mercy of our Lord. Have mercy on those who doubt. He gives all these commands and lists them out, right? There's five different commands in those verses listed out there. Now think for a second. Everything Jude lists there would be what we consider to be part of the, the biblical process of sanctification where God is making you and I in his image and likeness, right? That if someone is a follower of Jesus, you are by definition growing to become more like your Lord and Savior. So everything that Jude lists there are things that are part of that process. But if you are a Christian and a follower of Jesus here this morning, think about all those things on that list that I just shared. How do you feel like you match up to that list? Do you feel like it's going well? R relatively? Right, are you building up your faith? Are you building up on the knowledge of Scripture and, and learning to trust Him more and seeing the doctrinal truths of what God has done for you in Christ growing and, and looming larger in your heart? What about the million dollar question that Christians always get asked, right? How's, your, how's, how's prayer going? Right? What's everyone's answer? Oh, I could always be praying more, you know. Right, because there's that famous passage that says pray without ceasing. Well, there you go, right? Is anybody in here praying without ceasing, by the way? Not a single hand up in here. Right, that we see commands like that in the scripture, and then we start seeing what God asks us as we grow, right? We, we see this line, right? Have mercy on those who doubt. How's, how's that going? Do you feel like you're, you're doing that well? Do you feel like you're doing that up to the standard that God has set for us? The reality is, is that Jude lays all these things out knowing full well that we're not going to be able to keep them perfectly. Doesn't mean we don't pursue them, but the reality is, is that if you and I could do those things on our own power, of our own accord, without the help and the movement of God, we would have done it already. I got asked a couple years ago by a guy that I was kind of helping counsel through a, a tough season in his life. He's like, Kevin, you know, I, you know, I just, as a, I'm trying to put sin to death and, and, and working on becoming a better man and follower of Jesus, I, I just keep coming to this question. It's like, will, will I ever overcome these sins in my life? Will I ever, will I ever see victory? And the good news is, and the promise of the scriptures, the answer is yes. Right, that, that you can see sin put to death, but here's the reality, on this side of eternity and glory, you won't see it fully. And one thing I've seen reign true in the last 11 years of my life as I've been a follower of Jesus is that if you look at my life now versus 11 years ago, you're like, man, Kevin's grown a lot. Maybe not vertically, but in, in other ways, he's grown a lot. He's grown in his trust and faith in Christ. He's grown to have a deeper love for people. My sister's here this morning, I, and, and my buddy JR, who I've been friends with since third grade. We were mortal enemies in second, but third grade, it got fixed. <laughs> Nothing brings two people like a mutual, together like a mutual enemy, by the way. So if you guys have ever w wondered about that, and you're counseling kids that don't get along with somebody, just have them find someone else they don't like together, and that brings them together. This is terrible advice I'm giving you, by the way, but that's how JR and I became friends. That the reality is, is they would tell you, I wasn't a very nice guy. That if I was a friend with you, 
that if we were in some sort of a relationship, that relationship centered around what I could get out of the relationship. And if for some reason you started demanding I, you know, do things like a normal human being, like, you know, be kind, care, be there, I would just cut the relationship off. That, but that God in his mercy saw fit to save me and that over time I've seen God change me. I've seen him change my heart. I've seen him change my attitudes towards people. I've seen him change the way I approach my sin and the way I used to love it and now I hate it. And here's one of the things that's fascinating. There's all these things that have changed in my life and, and if we were looking back at, between then and now we would say, well, Kevin has certainly grown a ton. And you know what else looms large in my, in my own heart, though, as I look at my life? That as I've grown and put certain sins to death, the sins that remain loom even larger in the face of a holy and just God. And that, yes, maybe at one point there was an addiction to pornography. Or maybe at one point in my life I had no idea how to actually be a friend and love someone well. And that as God has been peeling back those sins, right, and, and calling me to take up my cross and follow after him, and I've done so, I've seen victory, and yet I look deeper and deeper and I see the wickedness of my own heart which stands in rebellion towards God at times. That wants my way and no other way. And it leads me to do some dark and sinful things. And so as I look at that list that Jude shared and I think about all those things that he asked us to do as we are sanctified in God's love, I think, oh my gosh. Like, okay, maybe some days I'm doing some of those things. And there's other days where, like, can I, can I even check one of those five things that he has listed there off? where I'm being merciful towards others, where I'm praying, where I'm growing and trusting in the Lord, where I'm building myself up in God's love for me. And if Jude's letter to the church stopped there, there would be a great potential for you and I to despair because we're never gonna reach the standard that God has set. There would be a great potential for us to wallow in misery, and yet what Jude does is instead encourage his readers to remember that in pursuing God and pursuing growing in Christ not to lose sight of the truth of what God has promised us that he who has begun a good work in you and I will see it through to the day of Christ Jesus. That's the promise of eternal security, that God will keep you. That if you are truly in Christ, God keeps you. He's able to prevent you from stumbling and sinning. That he's able to present you blameless. Think about that. Does anyone in here have a blameless account before the God of the universe? I've been sharing my faith with people on college campuses for 11 years now. Many of them don't believe in my God. Many of them don't even believe in a God at all. You know what's fascinating though? I've probably met somewhere close to 1,500 to 2,000 people just going out and doing evangelisms on campus, and I'm not exaggerating that number, by the way. I have yet to meet one person that thinks they're perfect. Every single person in here 
has a conscience to know that somewhere along the line, you don't even meet your own standard, much less the God of the Bibles. And so, as we sit here and see this beautiful truth that Jude lays out for us, you and I are not blameless. Far from it. And yet the promise of the Scripture is that God will present you blameless in the presence of God. Guys, could there be anything more beautiful than that? Right, that God taking you guilty as a sinner stands you before the Father and declares you not guilty to Him. You are guilty. I am guilty. And yet the Father stands before us and His Son says, I died on Kevin's behalf and now I present to you your son, Kevin, who was blameless in your sight because of my blood which was shed for him on the cross. And so of all the doctrines in Scripture that are taught, it is my belief that the Bible's teaching on eternal security might be the most important, especially when it comes to properly understanding salvation. Think about some of the important things we know to be true about what God teaches us in Scripture. Right, there's the doctrine of justification. Okay, if anybody, I'm going to be using some theological terms here, so I'm going to try to define them for you guys. The Bible teaches that, that you and I are guilty sinners before God, but because of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, he has secured for you and I forgiveness of sins through repentance and faith. And that the doctrine of justification teaches that you and I are declared not guilty for our sins, past, present, and future. That's what the doctrine of justification teaches. Super, super important, right? Because the doctrine of justification teaches that you and I don't have any role in that. That it's all secured by the work of Jesus Christ. But when you add to that the beauty of eternal security, we're not just justified at one time, we're justified for eternity. That what God has secured for you and I is not just a redo, it's a redo that lasts into eternity. Eternity future where we will sit in the throne room of God and worship Him. Right? Think about what the Bible teaches about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is given to those who by repentance and faith trust in Christ as their Savior. And that the Holy Spirit comes up inside you and I and takes residence in our lives and seals us for eternity. Right, that the Holy Spirit is part of the linchpin of the doctrine of eternal security. See how these different things happen and that the eternal security finds its way into being a part of that particular doctrine? Think about the doctrine of future glory or glorification. Right, that one day Christ will return and set things right and will rule for eternity with his followers worshiping and praising him. And here in verse 24 we have the promise that if you are a follower of Jesus, you will for eternity experience that and be a part of that. Guys, this is why the gospel is so beautiful. 
in a world where you are constantly being judged upon your own merits and worthiness. God's word reaches down and tells you the truth about who you really are. A wicked sinner in rebellion towards God. That you are way more messed up than you would even probably admit to yourself. And yet God loves you way more than you could ever imagine. And he demonstrated that love by sending his son to satisfy the father's wrath for our rebellion. And that he declares us not guilty based upon the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not our own works. And then that he promised to see that work through to completion because he promises to keep you. Now I know one of the things that's true of us as a church is that when you guys moved to Gainesville to come to college and some of you guys that moved here later to, to pick up jobs or whatever in the area, you come from different churches and theological backgrounds. And the reality is, is that not every church, church teaches on the truth of the doctrine of eternal security. Right? There are some that would tell you that it is possible for you to lose your salvation if you are not working or living in line with bearing good fruits. That's what, that's what they would teach. I would say that that's not what the Scripture teaches. The reality is, is what the Scripture teaches is that if you and I are truly in Christ, we will bear good fruit. And that if someone is living a life that does not in some way, shape, or form show fruits bearing with repentance, that what they're actually putting on display is that they never really believed and trusted in Christ in the first place. Right? And if you have been taught... Right, that the Bible teaches that you can lose your salvation, there are major, major problems with how you're going to have to approach the rest of Scripture. Right? Because the reality is, is you have to deny certain parts of Scripture to fit into that, that doctrinal puzzle that gets taught. Right? Turn over to me to Romans chapter 7. Right? This is this famous passage where the Apostle Paul is talking about this war that he's having internally with his own sin. And look at what he says starting in verse 21. He says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So here's what I'm trying to say. Right? If you don't hold to a foundational belief that God is going to see you through, you have to deny the truth of what passages like Romans chapter 7 are saying. Because what Paul is saying is that I believe. Right? I believe that Jesus Christ came, lived, and died for my sin and has secured for me right, a blameless justification before the Father. And yet... When I live my life, I see my own life spiraling out of control at times, doing the very things I claim to hate. And that in doing these things, right, I deny 
that I have experienced the love of God. And then look at what he says. Because Paul holds and knows that God has promised to keep him and keep his salvation not based on his own record, look at what he says. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at what he's, he's saying. The hope of the doctrine of eternal security is that he will one day be delivered from his body of corruption. And look at what he says in Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. For who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. That Paul promises the same promises that God gives to us. That there is no condemnation, that you are declared not guilty, even though he's just got done admitting that his life, what? Is kind of messed up. That he tends to rebel against the very things that God asks him to do. And so Jude is saying, in the midst of that war, in the midst of that battle with your flesh, in the midst of you working out your salvation and putting sin to death and trying to keep in the love of God, in the midst of you trying to pray in the Holy Spirit and show mercy towards others as you build up your faith, God is keeping you. Now there's some of you in here I know I would say, yeah, Kevin, I believe in everything that you're saying doctrinally right now. I, I believe in the doctrine of eternal security. My church taught it. I had to take catechism as a kid, and I had to do all these things, you know. My, my parents had me memorize all these things, and John Calvin, I have a picture of him on my, on my wall, and, you know, there's all these exciting things that you, you're pumped about, right? And, you know, Martin Luther, you know, is, is one of your, you know, most important in life influences, but it's just as dangerous to believe in the doctrine of eternal security and live as your life as if it's not true. Guys, the biggest barrier to belief in God in 2017 is not intellectualism. It's not a lack of moral values in our political system or even in our school system. It's not people refusing to raise their children up in the church, the biggest barrier to belief in God in 2017 is Christians that show little joy and confess the beauty of Jesus with their mouths and yet confess despair with their actions. The way I see this most frequently manifest itself is, is with habitual sin. You know, and, and there's a reason to, to hate your sin. I'm, I'm not saying, like, be okay with your sin. That's, you say, you go home and say, oh, yeah, my pastor was saying sin's cool. Not what I'm teaching this morning, okay? You've missed it somewhere, okay? But the reality of, is if you are being built up in the truths of Scripture, you're going to run to the same places that Paul ran to in Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8, where you can look at your life 
you can see how messed up you are, and your response is not to despair, but instead worship and glorify your Savior who has rescued you from that sin. And that in that worship, and knowing that you are kept, you are then motivated to continue to put sin to death. Think about this with me for a second because there's people like that I've known. Some of you guys have been here for years and then, you know, I'll, I, I, you, I won't talk to you for six months and you'll just disappear. And guys, I know what happens when you disappear. You're not doing well most of the time. Right? It's like, you guys think Pastor Kevin's clueless. First of all, the church is not that big. And so if you've been here for any season of time and you're not here for a while, I notice it. Right? And some of you guys, you know, like, you know, I, I'm on Facebook for one reason so that you can contact me and message me because okay, I don't really like to give out my phone number. Okay? Some of you guys, like, I won't see you for a while, and then I'll message you on Facebook. That thing shows me if you've read my message or not, by the way, guys. <laughs> it's like, hey, you know, because I'm praying for you, and I'm thinking about you, and so then I'll message you, and I won't hear anything. And then five months later, you guys will show up. It's like, oh, man, I was just, you know, I was really busy with school. College students, I love you. Your schedule's a joke. <laughs> I have two kids, a wife, and a full-time job. Yes, I realize you are in class for three hours a day. Yes, I realize that you stayed up till 4 a.m. the night before doing who knows what. And so being involved with something the next morning is difficult. But your life is not that insane to where things are too busy for you to be plugged into a ministry and growing with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so you guys will show back up five months later and you're like, oh man, Kevin, like, can I meet with you for lunch this week? I'm really struggling. It's like, well, I contacted you five months ago when I saw the beginning of this, but yes, let's meet. And then you proceed to kind of listen to me like, oh yeah, I haven't been around. You probably noticed. Yes, that's why I messaged you. You know, I, I, you know, it wasn't just that I was busy with school. I've been, I've been struggling with the sin, and it's just been really weighing me down. And because you disconnected yourself from the community, you missed out on what you needed during that time, which is being reminded the truth of what you're not telling yourself. Right? We are notoriously bad at seeing our own blind spots. But look to your left and look to your right. Your brother or sister... In this church, they're going to see them. And if they love you, they'll point them out to you. And they'll call you to repentance. And they'll call you to do something that you're probably not doing in that morning, which is trusting that you're forgiven in Christ. Right? Most of the time when I see people that are habitually struggling with sin, I don't need to beat them up over the sin that they're struggling with. I need to remind them of what their Savior has done for them. Because somewhere along the way, you've stopped believing that what Jesus Christ did on the cross was sufficient for you. Somewhere along the way, you've started believing this lie, I can earn my own salvation. I've been a Christian for long enough now. You know, I, I, I prayed that prayer and threw my CD into the fire at camp, at summer camp when I was in third grade. You know, it was, it was great. I don't know what they do at camp anymore with MP3, so you throw your iPod in there or whatever else it is. And so this is what I'll do. 
Right? I'll listen to you kind of sit there and talk and tell me how terrible things are going with her, and then I'm going to ask you this simple question. How does someone become a follower of Jesus Christ? How is someone saved? And most of you guys are doctrinally aware enough to sit there and look at me and say, well, you know, I, I'm saved by Christ's life and then his death on the cross on my behalf. And then that is secured for me by his resurrection, which proved that God had accepted the sacrifice of the Son and then I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit. Right, you'll give me all that beautiful doctrinal stuff. And then I'm going to ask you, did Jesus die for that sin that you're talking to me about right now? Did Jesus die for that and are you believing that? And inevitably, what they say is, I'm struggling to believe that right now. Throw John chapter 15 verse 13 up there for me, Josh. This is Jesus talking to his disciples before he ever gives up his life. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Do you know what Jesus immediately says to his disciples after that? You know what he calls them? Friends. Do you know what Jesus calls you or if you're his disciple? Friends. So Jesus is saying that God shows no greater love, that there's no greater love in this world that could be shown than someone lay down his life for his friends. Guys, that's what God did for you. God laid down the life of his son for you while we were yet sinners. To demonstrate that love for us. When you are in the pits of despair, like Paul in Romans chapter 7, despairing over your own sin, I want you to ask yourself this question. How was I saved? And what could I possibly add to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross? Because most of us, when we're in those seasons of doubt and darkness, what we're trying to do is add to the work of Christ on the cross. And John 15, 13 says what? You can't. There is nothing you could possibly add to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for your justification. That doesn't mean you don't do good works. That doesn't mean you don't love and show mercy to others, but that in regards to your justification, there is nothing you can add. You were saved by the work of Jesus and Jesus alone. And if Jesus can't hold on to that for you, nothing can. If Jesus can't keep you, nothing can. If the Father, through the work of the Son, by the seal of the Holy Spirit, cannot keep your salvation, nothing will. Stop trying to keep it on your own. Now look at what he says. Because we haven't focused in on this part of verse 24 very much because we've been focusing on the, on the promises, but look what he says. He starts out by saying, to him who is what? Able. There's your good news, guys. You are not able. 
God is. You are not able to prevent yourself from stumbling. God is. You are not able to present yourself holy and blameless before the Father. God is. You are not able to experience great joy in the presence of the Father because if any of us were to stand before the Father and offer our own lives to him in that moment, we would be met with fear and trembling because we would realize the full weight of our sinfulness and yet because of Christ, he is able to present you. A couple years ago, which seems like an eternity at this point because I'm starting to realize that I'm old. And there's some people laughing because they're young and they do think I'm old. And there's some of you guys in here that are older than me and are laughing because like he's actually young. But at my college, there used to be some of these really fun guys that would come around a, uh, about one week a year and just yell at people. You guys have those here at Turlington, I believe, right? They're everyone's favorite people to engage with on campus, right? And there's this one particular guy who would come on campus and you know, he would sit there and yell at people he didn't know and accuse them of certain things and then, you know, tell them they needed to repent or they'd burn in the lake of fire and all these different things. And, and so there was one afternoon I was standing there while he was there that week and I, and I decided to, he had, you know, taken a break for two minutes to stop screaming at people. I don't know if his voice was tired or what. So I decided to walk over and engage with him. And he actually engaged me in a conversation for a few minutes. And as I'm engaging in this conversation with him, I'm just asking him, like, hey, you know, do you feel like your ministry is pretty effective? You know, you walk, you go around to a lot of different campuses, you know, tell me your story a little bit. And so he was telling me some things or whatever, and it was a pretty cordial conversation. And I said, well, you know, you, you demand uh, all these people that, that, that walk through here repent of their sin and, 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 and turn to Christ. But I don't see you talking a whole lot about Jesus and, and what he's done. I just hear you talking about people's sin over and over again and screaming at them and accusing them of things, people that you don't even know. And I said, you know, don't you, don't you feel like, you know, maybe there would be a more effective way to go about this ministry? And he's like, no, people need to know they're sinners and, and whatever else. And I said, well, I mean, I, I agree with you. No, you know, no, one's, no one's ever going to come to Christ unless they understand first and foremost that there's bad news to tag along with the good news, and that's that we're separated from God because of our sin. I said, but, you know, don't you ever feel convicted with the, with the way that you're treating people? And it's like, you know, knowing that you're in need of the same Savior that they need. And he goes, well, you know, you know this. I was like, you know, and the sins that you're, I said, well, the sins that you're accusing people of, don't you realize and want to show some compassion because God and Christ has shown mercy to you for those same sins and it continues to? And he's like, well, I don't sin anymore. And like there was this part of me that was like, come again? He's like, yeah, you know, like, I used to sin before I knew God, but then I, I confessed my sin and repented and I haven't sinned in 18 years. And I said, well, you're lying right now. <laughs> and that is, that is a sin. It's, you know, one of those Ten Commandments that God gave the nation of Israel. He's like, you don't know me. I was like, well, you yell at people all the time, and I can do the same thing as you, right? And so he started getting a little more agitated, and he's like, no, I'm telling you, you know, I, I, I don't sin anymore. God died for me, and when he died for me, I don't sin anymore. And I said, well, let me ask you something. I said, do you believe in the New Testament? I said, well, yeah. He's like, do you, do you believe in the words of Christ and the things that Christ told us to do? He's like, well, yeah. I was like, so you would agree with the, the Sermon on the Mountain and passages in Matthew 18 on, on how Jesus says we're supposed to handle conflict and, and engage with people? And he's like, yeah. I said, 
well, Jesus says that you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. And if I sat here and had a conversation with you, you tend to love yourself a lot, but I don't see that same love being showed to complete strangers on the street. Now, I'd like to say that in that moment, he realized what he was doing and repented of his sin and started walking with Jesus. Instead, he began to scream at me and call me a pornographer and walk away. Guys, that is where, right, having a proper understanding of Scripture and how God relates us with us is incredibly important. Because if you don't understand two things that you still sin and yet God still keeps you, you waver and head down some dark path. You either head down a path that leads to you trying to perform for God and earn his affections and earn his favor, or you head down the path that this particular man headed down where you start believing things about yourself that aren't even true. You believe you're better than you really are. The good news is that you are not able to be sinless, but God is and did, and he showed mercy to you based upon the life of Jesus Christ, not your own. It's the best news in the world that you and I are kept and that we're not responsible for the end product, but God is. And here's the best news of all. Right, look at verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time. The best news about God keeping you secure for eternity is that God then gets the glory for it not you. It frees you. If your life is centered around you having to properly bring worship and attention and glory to God all the time, you will inevitably fail, but God cannot fail. And he's after his own good, his own name, and his own glory, and he will see it through. And the reason God keeps you and promises to save you is not because you're worthy, but because he is. Not because you are deserving, but because he is. And because he's after his own glory and his own fame and his own name, he will see you through. These last two verses are often called um, a doxology, which just in the Greek means word of praise. And we've seen Jude throughout the course of this letter, right, warn against false teachers, you can tell from his letter that he's probably weary from knowing that there is much work to still be done in the church, that he's weary from persecution that, that the church is facing at the hands of false teachers. He's weary from his own sin and the sin of others as he encourages them to continue to, to build up and grow. And who of, uh, who of us in this room cannot relate and feel that way at times? And yet he gets to the end of his letter and instead of despair, what does he offer up? hope. He rejoices in God who keeps him. He rejoices in the glory of his God and King, his majesty, his dominion, his authority, and the fact that for eternity, if you are in Christ, you will know, worship, and enjoy him. And so here at Aletheia, if this is your first Sunday, 
What we do after our time in the Word is we have a time of prayer and reflection. And what we also do in that time is, is Charles will be up here playing some music. And as you feel led, we would offer you to come up here to, to my left and to my right. Um, there are some elements for communion. And we offer communion here every Sunday. You certainly are not required to take it by any means, but it's there as, a, as an offering for you to come up and take it. And what, what we're doing when we take communion, guys, is we're not just coming up and partaking in bread and some grape juice. It's not, it's not just some ritualistic thing here. That the point of taking communion is that we first reflect over our own need for Christ and our need to repent of sin and lay that before him. And then after doing that, we would invite you to come up and take the elements, the, the bread and the grape juice, right? Not out of guilt and shame that you're a sinner, but out of the fact that God has declared you not guilty and by pouring out his flesh and blood, which is what the bread and the grape juice represent, you know that you are forgiven and accepted in Christ and that you can take the elements and worship instead of be in despair. And so I would invite you to spend some time reflecting and praying. And then I would invite you to come to the table and take communion, rejoicing in God who has saved you. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I would ask that you not take communion, right? Not because we don't love you, but because this is, a, this is something that actually means something to a follower of Jesus, It means that we believe that the only way to God is through the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe those things, none of the symbolism in taking communion means anything to you. And the scriptures actually say that you're heaping up judgment on yourself because you've had the explanation of what God has done for you, laid out before you, and you've still rejected it. So instead, I invite you to sit and reflect on what we talk about. Right? If a friend brought you, talk to them about why they're a follower of Jesus and what it looks like to follow him. And we'll take communion, we'll worship, and we'll sing some more songs. I'm gonna pray for you guys. Thank you for being here. I love you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, you know of our great propensity to run to our own performance, to examine our own lives and find both satisfaction and meaning in what we say and what we do. And yet, Father, the reality is is that all of us are found to be in rebellion towards you. And as we open up your word, what we instead see is a God who chose to love and to save and to keep. God, thank you that you promise that you've saved us once and for all and you promise to keep us and that we can be motivated by your great love for us in Christ. Father, I pray for the men and women here this morning. Some are excited about a new chapter of life beginning to start. Some are weary from being in the midst of years of the same chapter and some are ready to just throw in the towel. Father, I pray that they would rest this morning. Rest in the promise that you've given to us to keep us. 
that you are able to keep us from stumbling, that you are able to present us before the throne of the Father, blameless and spotless, worshiping and enjoying you for eternity. Father, thank you for your Son. Thank you for your Spirit. Thank you for your perfect plan. Forgive us of our sins. Help us to glorify you in all that we say and do. I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.